In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For the eyes, my eyes, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to my people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. May we begin with the teaching of God's Word in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, in which Mark read from moments ago. But in order to correctly understand this passage of Scripture, or any passage of Scripture for that, for that matter, one must have a correct theology. Theology is the ordered, systematic study and interpretation of God. Based on God's divine self-revelation as revealed through the Scripture. Now, everybody adheres to a certain theology. You might think that, oh, theology, you know, I'm just here to love Jesus. No, you are a theologian. What you think about God, be it right or not, <laughs> you have a theological perspective. Many people today err greatly in their theological view because they don't have a biblical, correct biblical view of God. There's great error. There's great error that's taught. And there's great error that's being learned and then regurgitated by those who think they have a proper view of God, when in reality it's not based on God's self-revelation of Himself as through the living Word of God. So everyone is a theologian to some degree. Some very bad theologians, others very good. But there's a great deal of spiritual immaturity today in the professing Church of Jesus Christ because most Christians have a very unbiblical or an, an improper theology, an improper view of God. Improper view of God. So we're going to look at theology proper today. And theology proper discusses God's omniscience. He's ever-present. God's omniscience. He's all-knowing. Omnipresent. Omniscient. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And the fact that He is eternal. Theology proper teaches us 
about who God is and what He does according to His own divine will. We learn from it that God is distinct from God the Son. God the Father is distinct from God the Son and distinct from God the Holy Spirit. We are monotheistic in our beliefs, meaning we serve one monotheist God. We serve one God. And as He has revealed Himself through the three persons of the Godhead, God Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are one in essence and nature. All that God the Father is, Christ is. All that God the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is. All that God the Father is, the Holy Spirit is. In essence and nature, they are identical. We serve one God. He's revealed Himself through the three persons of the Godhead. We know that is the Trinity. Now, the Bible, without any apology whatsoever, from Genesis through Revelation, declares for us that God is holy. Amen? Clearly, God is holy. means He's totally separate, perfectly set apart from that which He created including you and including me, if you're not in Christ. God is totally separate. God is holy. Holy, holy. God's unchanging because He's absolutely perfect. He cannot improve Himself. He's perfect. He cannot decrease because He is perfect in His eternally fixed nature. God is perfect, perfectly holy, with perfect knowledge All of His attributes are perfect. Now for a true follower of Jesus Christ, the making of a mature Christian begins with a very high view of God. It must begin right there, a high view of God. And only by knowing who God is as revealed through Scripture can a Christian properly relate to the one that they so boldly profess. It begins with a high view. Many Christians teach that Making disciples begins with Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the words of Jesus Christ, of which say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. That is incorrect teaching. Now many will gasp at this point, going, oh, That's the Great Commission! But in order to make effective disciples, biblical disciples, we must begin with Matthew 28, 18. The words of Jesus that says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority. This means absolute, sovereign authority, lordship over heaven and earth. Given to the Son by the Father. So everything begins with Him. And then disciples are made in response to the fact that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. It begins with the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. Now, many people have a very unbiblical perspective about God that affect their understanding of God. Some people see God as a vicious tyrant. Right? With no love, with no grace. Other people see God as a loving friend, a buddy without any justice or anger, in both perceptions of God, those categories are incorrect. They're both equally incorrect. Because God is full of mercy, love, and grace, and at the same time, He's righteous, holy, and just. God grants mercy. God sends judgment. 
God punishes sin. God forgives sin. God will grant believers entrance into heaven. And God will incur judgment with an entrance to hell for unbelievers. Others see God as a genie, their genie. You know, three wishes for worldly things. Praying according to their own lust, and so on. But theology proper gives us a more complete understanding of who God is and what He does according to His divine purpose. Because all will stand before God as who He is. Everybody. Not what finite humanity may perceive of God if it's outside of the Scripture. Everyone will stand before God as who He has professed and proclaimed Himself to be, who He's revealed Himself to be through the Scriptures. There's no getting around that. A good summary verse for theology proper would be Romans 11.33. And it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments in His ways past finding out. So, theology proper is really the study of God and His attributes, meaning His features or the characteristics that make up all that He is. Now, a mature believer in Christ is one who has been fashioned by Scripture, molded by the authoritative Word of God. And a mature believer who's been fashioned by Scripture understands the nature of God, who He is as He's revealed Himself to be. And your view of God is limited by, and you will level off with maturity if your view of God is not biblical. You're limited by the knowledge you have as to the nature of God. If it's not fully and completely as He's revealed Himself through Scripture, you're limited, you're immature. Any, Any of us. God must be exalted. He must be as who revealed and taught as though He has revealed Himself to be through Scripture. Now, God is sovereign in all things, including man's eternal destiny. Now, it's at this point that some raise the question, well, you know, what about our free will to choose God? What about our free will to choose godliness? What about that? People raise that question. But when, t- when people talk about free will, they're typically concerned about the matter of salvation because few are interested and man's free will when it comes to you going to the closet this morning, whether or not you would wear the blue tie. I had a blue tie out and a red tie out, and I had the free will to choose what I wanted. You might have had a blue sweater out or a pink sweater and chose freely to pick whatever you want. People don't have a problem with that. But what people are troubled over is who exactly is in control of our eternal destiny. In any discussion of man's free will must begin with an understanding of his nature, man's nature. Very, very important. Because man's will is bound to his nature. And anyone who's outside of Jesus Christ have a sin nature. Before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, granted by grace in the first place, the grace of God, your nature was that of a depraved, sinful man or woman. And you were captive to that nature. You were imprisoned to that nature. Now, I've been in many prisons in my time, doing prison ministry. (laughs) And 
in each one of these prisons, and I'm talking level three, level four, or even maximum, uh, um, um, all, that's all maximum security, death row and all that, you're in a cell, and that cell is within a prison block or a prison building, and that prison building is within a prison yard, and that prison yard is within the prison property, and that prison property is inside of three fences, two razor wire fences, and in the middle of that is a, an electric fence. You touch it, you die. Prisoners inside. Picture them in their cell. They have freedom in that cell. The only freedom they have is to walk to and fro within that cell and no matter how much they willfully desire to be outside of the furthest gate, they're confined to that cell. They're subject to that cell. No matter how much they will to be outside of that cell. So it is with man. Anyone who's not in Christ, because of sin, man is imprisoned within the cell of corruption. Wickedness saturates the very core of human beings. Every part of man is in bondage to sin if you're not in Christ. Our bodies, our minds, our wills. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. In our natural, unregenerate state, we're carnally minded. We don't think about God in regard to who He's revealed Himself to be anyway. Romans 8.6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So these verses tell us that before we're saved, we are at enmity, which means to be at war with God. The Bible is clear that in his natural state, man is absolutely incapable of choosing that which is good or that which is holy. In other words, he does not have a free will to choose God because his will is not free. If you're in Christ, your will has been set free. You're here to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because your will has been set free. Your desire, your hunger, your thirst is for the one who set you free. That's true freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom from the bondage of death. But the sinner who is not in Christ is controlled by his nature just as the prisoner is controlled or constrained by the cell in which he will spend the rest of his life in if he's been given a life sentence. Death row. The one outside of Christ is on death row in a cell of depravity. Unable to escape outside of the divine grace of God to free them from that condition. God chooses whom He will release. We can't do anything about that but pray. Amen? See, in Christ we're given the freedom and the power to pray. To pray on the behalf of those who are confined. We leave the choice to Him but we present the gospel to who? To all. To all. Jesus said in John 6.37 The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. But Jesus also said, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father in heaven. Only in Christ is the will set free from the prison cell of self-righteousness, pride, depravity. And my deep concern for the church today is that there's much too much shallowness within, the regard, within regard to God's holiness, within regard to God's sovereignty in both teaching and in worship. 
a disregard for the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. A sad state, a sad condition in which the church overall is in today. So to keep our minds in biblical form, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture here in Isaiah that it declares the sovereign rule and reign of a holy, proactive, holy, proactive God who operates with no obligation whatsoever to man, who operates with zero obligation to that which he's created. God is sovereign. He operates freely within himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's how he operates. Out of his own independent prerogative. Because God, check it out, is a debtor to no man. God is indebted to no one. God does not need us. Some people teach God needs us. No, He doesn't. He doesn't. And when you'll see this morning through the teaching of Scripture that He doesn't need us, it ought to humble us. The fact that God is sovereign, He sovereignly chose you, if you're in Christ, should humble you. It, not, it ought not to cause us to bow up against God's sovereign will, sovereign desire. It should be humbling. But the question this morning, what brings to the surface or what brings to the forefront a man or woman of God? Who becomes a man or woman of God? What defines a man or woman of God? It's answered with one word. Grace. Grace, which is unmerited favor. Grace in His sovereign rule. Grace in His sovereign reign. Grace in His sovereign redemption. Grace in sovereign regeneration which means to birth again new life and out of someone who's dead, and even sovereignty within the reaction of those who come to Christ to desire to live obedient lives. We'll see that's because of God's grace as well. Faith is a gift. A gift of God. This passage in Isaiah is filled with the grace attributes of God. Overflowing. Grace, 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 grace. So we're going to look at five points in regard to the grace distributed to this revealed man of God, Isaiah, son of Amaziah. First we'll briefly look at the judgment of King Uzziah. And in it we see sovereign, check it out, sovereign retribution, sovereign judgment. And then we're going to look in detail, five points, sovereign grace of revelation, Sovereign grace of realization, the theological term would be the doctrine of illumination, but it didn't start with R, so to be cute, I put that in there. Number three, sovereign grace of repentance. Number four, the sovereign grace of redemption. And then number five is the grace of reaction, or the grace that's granted by the Holy Creator to the fallen creature, which enables him to react in obedience. It's all God's grace. Every bit of it, beginning to end, is by the grace of God alone. Man's not sovereign. God is. But it all began here in the, in the year of King Uzziah's death. And the Bible tells us that Uzziah started off in a, in a godly fashion. Second Chronicles 26.3, you can just jot this down. It says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of God according to all that his father Amaziah had done 
And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. See, Uzziah was victorious in battle. He built towers in Jerusalem. He strengthened the walls of the city around Jerusalem. He restored the military power of Judah almost to the equivalent of that of King David. So he was very effective, very wise, very sharp. He was a strong leader. And a beloved king. But his reign ends on a sad note. Stained with sin and stained with pride. Because, like most of us, after acquiring great wealth and power, he himself tried to be his God. He wanted to play the role of God. He wanted to do his own, here we go, quote, quotation, will. Second Chronicles 26.16 says, But when he was strong and his heart was lifted up to his destruction... For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him. And with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. I was around valiant men this weekend. Men of God, saturated with biblical truth, or at least have a hunger for biblical truth. Verse 18. And they withstood King Uzziah, and they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That was the role of the priest. That was the priest's role. Divinely given by God. But he wanted to take upon himself. Notice Uzziah wasn't surrounded by yes-men here. This is a priestly role of responsibility, and these guys stood in opposition to what he desired to do. Being surrounded by yes-men in ministry, the first sign that when, when a minister begins to surround himself with a bunch of yes-men, is, is you, you can count on the fact that he's moving away from absolute the absolute authority of Scripture. And then he'll start telling people that God told me this, God told me that, I had a vision of this, I had a vision of that. I want to be surrounded by men, the only thing they say yes to is the authoritative Word of God. The authority of Scripture. So that we will do things that rightly represent the one who wrote it. He spoke it. See, God will guard His Word with wrath, if need be. Uzziah's response to this, he became furious. So he went in and he burned incense anyhow. The consequence, his forehead broke out with leprosy. Right there. His forehead breaks out with leprosy. And from then on, he had to live in an isolated house, separated, and die as a leper, cut off from the house of the Lord. Divine retribution. And then during the year of his death, 739 B.C., 52 years of his reign, Isaiah, son of Amaziah, his prophetic ministry, he prophesies the first five chapters of Isaiah, then he breaks away, which we're going to look at now, to authenticate his message as he recites his call to the ministry. It's staggering. There was definitely a time of national mourning here. So whatever purpose he had in his heart to go to the temple, perhaps to mourn over the loss of this king, whatever the case, I tell you one thing, he wasn't seeking out God in the manner in which he would meet God. Isaiah was drawn by God. He was drawn by God for God's great purpose and for his own glory. God's glory. Everything's for the glory of God, not the glory of man. Man is nothing. You and I are finite. God is infinite. Infinite. 
So we're going to look at these five points in a moment, but first look at verse 1. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Notice the word Lord there. In English, it's in lowercase letters. That's the Hebrew translation of Adonai, meaning Sovereign One. That's God's title. Adonai. Adonai, Adonai. Right? Adonai. That's His title. This was the title given to Jesus in the New Testament. When Christ is called Lord, He is invested with the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament, Adonai. He's called King of Kings. He's called Lord of Lords. Notice it's not the name of the Lord. Like in verse 3, you see all caps there in English? That refers to God's unspeakable name, Yahweh. So, like it, such as uh, Psalm 8, verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The Jew would say, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There's his name, there's his title. Yahweh, Adonai. Isaiah, at this point, was unconscious as to the human realm around him. Unconscious as to the physicality of the temple. He saw what God had revealed of Himself. Much like John in the book of Revelation, when God gave divine revelation to John to pen these words, there's so many descriptions He had to use that, you know, if you remember when you read, it was like this, it was like that, it was like such as these, right? Trying to come up with words that He could communicate in human fashion. Just impossible. Isaiah was dead, but Isaiah's eyes were open to see the real national king. The true king. The everlasting king. The ultimate glorious king. And notice verse 2. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Seraph means fiery ones. Fiery ones. Glittering ones. Holy angels, unfallen angels. That's what he sees. In the description he gives, you see kind of these man-like features. Notice in verse 2, we see that they have feet. Verse 6, hands, simply descriptive. But this is to re-emphasize the holiness of God. They covered their eyes. They covered their feet. And he had in his hand a coal, which we'll get to later. He's giving us a description. In human terms here. But the point is to reemphasize the holiness of God. In, 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 in whose presence even these glittering, sinless angels are absolutely overwhelmed. These are unfallen angels created there seeing the manifest glory of God and its perfection having never fallen they understand it then they understand it stood it in this passage and they understand it now God is holy 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 that's their response holy 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 the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of whose glory his glory not man's glory not a king's glory only the king of kings and the Lord of lords glory his glory God's glory 
The threefold repetition of God's holiness, known as the trihagion, holy, holy, holy. This indicates the entirety of divine perfection that separates God from His creation. Totally separate. It's totally set apart. You know, Jesus said to believers, we're to be holy as God is holy. We're to be set apart from the world system. Set apart from worldliness. If He redeemed you out of it and brought you out of it, we're to be separate from it. We're to be in it, but not of it. Set apart from its ways. Set apart from its philosophies. Set apart from its thinking processes. Its desires. Now, in this passage, it's interesting that we see that creation depends upon Him, but He Himself, God, is absolutely independent of creation. He is the I am that I am. Remember Moses, the burning bush. God says, I heard the voice of my people. He sends them to deliver the people out of the bondage of Egypt. Who shall I say ascend to me, Lord? Simply answer what? I am that I am. I am. Jesus referred to himself in the Gospel of John. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Not I was, not I will be. I am. Present tense. God glorified. God Almighty, the first, the last. Everything is for His glory. Yet by His grace, okay, by His grace, Isaiah recognized. That's point one, verses three through four. We see the grace of revelation. We read most of it. This is a vision of the Holy One. This is the vision of Almighty God granted to Isaiah by grace. This is not the gods of one, God of one's own imagination. You know, everybody in the world, all non-believers, I don't care where they are throughout the world, every human being is without excuse because God has granted every human being what's known as general revelation. General revelation. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, that says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. Without excuse. But because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Then they professed to be wives, and they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. In other words, in realizing that they've been made in the image of God, they go, well, I don't like that. I say God is like this. This is your 12-step program, people. Well, I have my God, you have your God. I say He's like this, and you say He's like that. Let's just agree to disagree. You're wrong, bud. God's revealed Himself. You don't make man, you don't make God in your image. You're created in His. Are you worshiping, worshiping Him as such? Right? They suppress the truth. They hold down the truth that's been revealed through the general revelation of creation. The fact that the sun rises and sets and the universe and how it rotates, how everything is moving moving out, just the supernatural work of God the Creator through science alone should point us to the Creator. But men, they love darkness, so they suppress that truth. That's general revelation that's just been bogged down. Because men love right, they love their 
sin more than they love righteousness. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Psalm 97.6, The heavens declare His righteousness and all the people see His glory. His glory. God's glory is the revelation of His attributes, His features, His characteristics. His declared glory through creation alone, all mankind is without excuse. Without excuse. It's sufficient to convince men of His holiness, the Bible says, of His righteousness, of His justice, of His power. General revelation. Now, if you're in Christ, you've been granted special revelation. Isaiah was granted special revelation. Amen? If you're in Christ, the veil of blindness and darkness has been lifted. God graced you to be able to believe. You remember our studies in Ephesians for the last 14 months. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, you just jot these down. He, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Ephesians 1.9 Having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. He purposed in Himself. He didn't counsel with man. He purposed it in Himself. Ephesians 1.11 Being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will that He who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Not man's glory. God's glory. Ephesians 1.13 You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the, redemptions of the per- until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. God's glory. Salvation begins and ends with the glory of God. The ultimate end of salvation, as I've said the last few weeks, is not that man... The goal of salvation is not that sinful man is joined back together with a holy God. The final ultimate goal is the glory of God. The means of which is sinners saved by grace, you see. It's the glory of God. And this special revelation granted to Isaiah by grace enabled him to see. It enabled him to realize. And that's point number two. The grace of realization, the doctrine of illumination. Verse 5. Look at what he says. He sees all of this and he says, So, I said... Woe is me, for I am undone. I am undone. You see, when one recognizes God as holy, there's only one reaction. One realization, only one. It's the overwhelming awareness of His absolute holiness. So, I said, woe is me, I am undone. If you're in Christ, or you say that you're in Christ, you've never come to this place of realizing that you're undone, please truly examine yourself because you may very well not be in the faith. Because this perspective of God leads to the next point, which we'll get get at in a minute. Anybody can say they're a Christian. Anybody can utter the words. That's why Jesus said in the last day there are going to be many, many, many who cry out, Lord, I know you, oh Lord, you're back. I don't know you, depart from me. Terrifying. This is to mourn over your sin. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are the Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What are they mourning over? Their sin. You know why? Because they see their sin as God sees it. 
All of the Sermon on the Mount, with most, which most of your non-Christian friends probably quote, because it's the most quoted portion of Scripture in all the Bible, right? Turn the other cheek, you know. You know, all of that. It's only applicable to those who've been redeemed. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Until a person comes to God poor in spirit, seeing Him who is He is, who he is you, you, all you can do is cover your face. That's what the word poor means. Reach out as a beggar, knowing you have nothing to offer Him. When you see Him as He is, the next step is verse 4, you mourn over your sin. Because He's given you the ability by grace to realize that you're a sinner. And that's when you find comfort in the Comforter, Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, you found comfort in Him because He's taken your sin away, as we'll see later on. But the reaction is, woe is me. <laughs> I am undone. Undone means to come unraveled at the seams. To disintegrate. If you integrate something, you bring things together like this. As I'm bringing my fingers together like this to interlock, that's integrating something. To disintegrate is just absolutely the opposite. That's how he describes this, this vision. In one word, Isaiah expresses his thought, I'm cut off. He could have said, I'm doomed. I've been made to cease. Let's sum it up. I'm undone. I am undone. This is a terrifying but very true self-evaluation right here. No positive self-help here. Right? There's no making sure that your felt needs are met. There's no comparing himself with another. All self-esteem is shattered before a holy God. Shattered. So long as you compare yourself with other people, you will be able to maintain a lofty opinion, insight as to yourself. You can have a lofty opinion of yourself so long as you're comparing yourself to the next guy. Compare yourself to a holy God. You know what takes over? The same thing that took over Isaiah. Fear and trembling. To come undone. That's fear and trembling in front of a holy God. There's a great absence today in churches as to the teaching of the fear of God. We're instructed in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. The church. Seems to be a problem for Christians today to get away from the idea that Jesus was this hippie guy rolling around through Palestine patting people on the back right and telling them to have a great day you know the Jesus buddy winking his eye hey that's not Jesus Christ most ridiculous thing I've seen is this little statue it's supposed to be Jesus and he's pointing there it's called Jesus buddy that's not Jesus Christ we live in this ball cap t-shirt mentality society that declares Jesus is my buddy He's not your pal. He's nobody's pal. If you're in Christ, you've become His friend. Because He's your Savior. You're no longer at war with God. You are a friend of God. There's a big difference. There's such flippancy as to the holiness of Jesus Christ by professing Christians. When Jesus was on earth, and when we were in Ephesians, we went over this. When Jesus was on earth, people were terrified of Him. He traumatized people traumatized people 
And there's a lot of things that contributed to that. Let's, we'll, we'll look at a couple of them. In John 7.15, it says, The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Even as a child in the temple, you remember that, 12 years old? He's with the big top shelf theologians of the day. And it says, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus, fully God, is a 12-year-old. He was born fully God. He was raised fully God. But at the same time, He was fully man. And that's how He died on the cross. He was fully God, fully man. It's impossible for anyone to be 200% of something except for Jesus Christ Himself. 100% man, 100% God. His wisdom was superhuman. Matthew 22:46. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare question him. You see, they were trying to paint Jesus into a corner. They were trying to catch him in his words. Man, it's impossible. They were overwhelmed. They were astonished. He taught with absolute authority. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 says, When Jesus had ended these sayings, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Authoritative. Jesus never said, um, I, I love you and if you just say this little prayer, you know, um, you can come to heaven with me and stuff. <laughs> he said, repent and believe. He didn't mince words. Not at all. His words were matchless. John 7.46, the officer said, No man ever spoke. Ever spoke like this man. His works were without question supernatural. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. John 9.33, it says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Demons! Demons. The lake of fire was created for Satan and demons and anyone who will follow them. The lake of fire. This is what demons said to Jesus in his earthly ministry. The demons cried out with a loud voice in Luke 4.33 saying, Let us alone. What, we ha what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. The demons. Jesus, we know you're holy. In, in Matthew 8.29, suddenly they cried out demons, context, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? These are unredeemable demons, referring to Him as the Holy One. His power, supernatural. He fed thousands. He healed the lame. He healed the leprous. He healed the deaf. He healed the blind. He spoke to a fig tree, and it withered, and it died immediately. You remember why? No fruit. From a distance it looked like it had something because it had leaves, but it had no fruit. Is there fruit in your life of godliness? Is there a fruit in your life that declares, I'm a child of God? Is there a fruit? This is one of the reasons the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They couldn't handle the intimidation. Is this a picture of some hippie rolling around through town making people feel good? No. He's holy. He was holy in eternity past. He was holy in His earthly ministry. And He's holy now in His glory. And He'll be holy when He returns in judgment. He's holy. 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 Well, that's Jesus' enemies, you may be saying. But 
If you remember, Jesus was in a boat during a great storm and his disciples were tripping, thinking that they were going to perish. So they wake him up, he's sleeping. There's a picture of perfect peace. (laughs) They wake him up. He rebukes the storm and then he rebukes them for their unbelief and it says they were terrified. They were terrified. John MacArthur says in regard to that situation, it's far more frightening to face the holiness of God inside your boat than to have a storm outside of your boat. In Mark 5.25, woman who had blood flow for years comes to Jesus. She's in the midst of all of this crowd of people. She said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I know I can be healed. Right? She pursues him diligently, grabs hold of the hem. Jesus feels power goes out. Who touched me? The disciples say, you're asking who touched you with all this great group of people? He looks at the woman. She looks at him. And she was in fearful terror. She was a child of God. But his power was overwhelming. It says she trembled. And the word tremble is the same word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the shaking of Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. Same word. She trembled. She was a child of God. Come on, somebody. The power of God. God is holy. She shook in the presence of the Holy God, just as Isaiah did, just as we should. With a healthy, reverent respect and awe and a fear of the Holy One. Don't be flippant with Jesus. Jesus ain't the man. He's not a buddy. He's nobody's pal. He's God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. This realization of Isaiah's sin caused him to come undone at the seams. To realize he was an open grave of depravity before Almighty God leads us to point number three, the grace of repentance. Grace of repentance. Verse five again. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, realizing this was an ability that was graced to him as to the impurity of his mouth. And the impurity of one's mouth is nothing but a reflection of what? An impure heart. An impure heart. Proverbs 23, 6, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 34, From out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The Spirit of God comes by grace to open the depraved mind of man. He opens it up. He enables the person to realize they're a sinner. There's only one place to go and it's on your face. In repentance. To have sorrow over the sin. This is the, this is the tax collector of Luke 18 who beat his chest, who could not even look up and he said, Lord God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. The Bible says that that man went away justified. God graced him to realize his position, which is sinful, separated from God. He went away justified, which means his new position was righteousness by imputation. Righteousness placed on his account, because he had none of his own. Nobody does. 
But notice what Isaiah says first. First he says, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a what? Let's start with the foundation. I'm a man. I am a man. I'm finite. I'm temporal. So not only is the reality of his finite humanity made evident, but also the fact that this man, which all I am is a man, I have an unclean mouth, which shows I have an unclean heart. That's godly sorrow. That's godly sorrow. There's two types of sorrow in the world. There's godly sorrow and it leads to repentance unto salvation. And there's a worldly sorrow. We've all had worldly sorrow. We weren't sorry about what we did because we grieved God. We were sorry about what we did because it caused consequences of getting busted in, in reaping the consequences of such sin rather than the fact that I just simply sinned against God. Oh, I feel guilty. I feel bad. Well, that's all you're sorry about. Until one comes to the place of godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow and the end thereof is death. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Again, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If your life hasn't radically changed since you've been making a profession of Jesus Christ, you've been saying you're a Christian, if you've never had a godly sorrow over sin, I truly question your faith. And because I love you enough to urge you to examine yourself if you've never come to that place, please, please do. You won't face me on Judgment Day. You'll stand before Jesus Christ. Just the messenger. If you're in Christ, you've come to this place. You rejoice because you realize you've been graced to realize your sinfulness and to receive what we're about to see here in a moment. God has graciously prepared Isaiah for his cleansing in his ministerial position, commission. It's very important to understand the context here. Isaiah was already a true believer who had served the Lord. And what we're reading about here in its context is, is a greater measure of service than before. He had to be cleansed for it. Okay, But nonetheless, repentance precedes living trust in a living relationship with the living God. So he could never come to this place in the first place lest God brought him to that place of realization of his own sin anyway. And because he came to that place of realization, it led him to the place of repentance, which leads to point number four, the grace of redemption. This is redemptive purification. Look at verse 6. And then one of the seraphim flew, notice, to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is what? Taken. Taken away and your sin purged. Your sin purged. This live coal was graced to Isaiah. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't standing up saying, well, I've been a good guy. I'm a good guy. Lord, I'm a good guy. No, you're not a good guy. You're a sinner like every other human being. Woe is me, I'm undone. He falls on his face. A repentant heart. God grants redemption. This is buying back someone who's lost. This is buying back a slave. That's what redemption is. Paying a great price. 
But notice, even though these holy angels recognize Isaiah's sinfulness, notice that they just didn't banish him, throw fire on him, cause him to disintegrate. <laughs> that is what he, just like you and I, deserve. God, just stop thinking about us for a moment. We would disintegrate. He holds the very breath of your life in his hand. When it, the day that's appointed for you to breathe your last, he closes his hand. Nothing you can do about it. It's appointed unto man once to die. Then the judgment. But here we see with this coal a symbolic assurance that his sins are forgiven. Did he do anything to deserve it? Nothing. Nothing. He responded to the grace that was initiated in the first place to be able to see. He responded by grace. Given revelation by grace. Realization and understanding of his own sin by grace. Led him to his face in repentance by grace. Only to receive the redemptive purification of God by grace. See, those who have sin natures are incapable of pleasing and worshiping God. He was in no place to worship God in a rightful place. He had to be cleansed. His heart had to be cleansed. He had to be purified. And to be purified can only come from the throne of heaven itself. The source. God Almighty, who is holy, holy, holy. He provides. He purifies. The live coal symbolizes, check this out, the total, absolute significance of the altar. It's all God. The coal represents the absolute significance of the altar. The source of which is God Himself. place in which it came, God provided. This reveals that the penalty of sin was paid for by a substitute. Paid for by a substitute. He couldn't pay for his own sin. If he wanted to pay for his own sin, he'd have to be cast into hell where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we see God's grace to provide this forgiveness, the cleansing, the purging. Substitutionary sacrifice. Substitute is offered in the sinner's place. The cold is provided, and then it's applied to the lips of the sinner. By God's initiating grace. And when repentance is gracefully granted to the sinner, he goes away, here it is, earlier, in the temple, justified. Justified. A legal declaration. Declared free from all blame. That's what it is to be justified. God's initiating grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by one offering context the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified those who are in Christ they're set apart they've been perfected guess for how long forever positionally perfect are we practically perfect no Just think about your thought life for a minute right and because we're in Christ we could we get convicted of our thought life therefore we go to the throne of what grace and how, do, how can we enter into the throne of grace boldly? You know why? Because we've been purged of our sin by the one who grants the forgiveness by grace. Anyone outside of Christ can't even enter. Nothing in and of themselves. They can do that. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a man at peace with God. If you're in Christ, you're at peace with God. The ability to receive God's glorious forgiveness leads us to the fifth and final point. This is the grace of 
Isaiah's reaction, the grace of Isaiah's response. This is a reaction as he's transitioning into the role of servant. Isaiah's responding to the ministerial call. Look at it. Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. Go. Tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, the ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their hearts, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. This is the first time we hear the Lord speak in the whole passage. This is the first time that God speaks. He says, Whom? Whom shall I send? Here's the question raised by the Lord as far as the commission of this man goes. He raises this rhetorical question to draw out a response out of the one who's been graced to believe. God initiated it. He's drawing out a response by the one that he has purged of his sin and made clean, forgiven. Notice God doesn't have to counsel with anybody. He didn't go to his angels. Hey, fellas, come on over here. Let's huddle up. Let me go down to earth and gather some priests. Let's huddle up. Let's see what's going on. No, he needs to counsel with no one. Perfect counsel in and of himself. Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? A plurality of perfection in and of himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perfect counsel in and of himself. He doesn't need outside counsel, input from any human being whatsoever. He's sovereign. He needs no counsel from his creatures. Isaiah responds, Here I am. Send me. Now, it's very important that you know this. It's only when a man has been convicted of sin and has understood the Redeemer's forgiving grace that he's able to respond in a manner that says, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I will go. It's only when he's been graced in all of those points that we've looked up looked at up to point five can he say here I am send me see because this is a call to the difficult road the gospel the true gospel not the seeker friendly gospel the true gospel the biblical gospel is the road of difficulty the picture of which is a cross self-denial crucifixion death of self this is the narrow path of true ministry the unpopular road, the unfamous road, the count the cost road. Jesus just didn't, never said, just say this cute little prayer and you're in. He said, count the cost if you're going to follow me. That's what he said. That's the gospel. There's so much bad news. The good news is he laid his life down. Calvary. You must repent and believe. And that's his grace. See, the living truth, the true gospel will cost the true gospel is a hard gospel. You can buy the book, Hard to Believe, by John MacArthur. It's on our bookshelf. I dare you. I dare you. If you have a cheap gospel perspective in your mind, read Hard to Believe. All it is is scripture declaring what it declares of itself through the pen of a man who's a student of the Word of God. The gospel's hard. It's not easy. It's hard. Because it totally chafes human pride. 
Not easy believism. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's not the cheap grace gospel. Grace is a gift, but it costs greatly. Jesus Christ, the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. You know, today you're here at these altar call type of ministries, sinners and treated with phrases like this, accept Jesus as your Savior, ask Jesus into your heart, invite Christ into your life, make a decision for Jesus today. You know, we become so accustomed to hearing those phrases, it may surprise you, none of them are based on biblical terminology at all. If it surprises you, search the scriptures. Prove me wrong. If they're not clarified, all it is is a, is a product of a diluted, watered-down gospel. Now, many of us have prayed, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, I surrender because He's graced you to see your sin and repent and believe and all of that. But unless that, there, there's clarification as to the meaning of those words, it's just a watered-down gospel and people easily say the prayer, Jesus, come into my heart, I'll make a decision for you today. And nothing changes. It's not the... It's not the supernatural work of God doing the initiating. It's man just being swept away or moved emotionally. Because he doesn't want to go to hell. This kind of seeing is a gift from God. This ability to repent is a gift of God. It's grace. Man doesn't come to God on his own. He must be graced by God. And God pulls you out of despair. You know, some people teach the gospel like Anthony taught the other night. They teach the gospel, it's like a man drowning and Jesus throws a, a life preserver and he, oh, grab this. No. <laughs> you have concrete chained to your feet and you're sinking and God pulls down and pulls you out. That's salvation. Initiated by God. That's salvation. He's the one that's sovereign. This kind of seeing that Isaiah saw, this is a gift of God. If you're in Christ, you've been granted a unique, special, revelatory gift to see God as who He is and to see your sin as it is to where you can say today, I'm saved and I know it 100% for sure because God has graced me through the ability to believe. And His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. That's called assurance. The assurance of salvation. That's what we rejoice over. Isaiah was given a ministry here. He says, look, God is saying to him, go preach. And as a matter of fact, as you preach, there's not going to be any converts. You're going to preach your heart out and no one's going to believe. As a matter of fact, the more you preach, the harder they're going to get. The more you preach, the blinder they're going to become. The more you preach, the more deaf they're going to become. Every time you preach, they're going to be falling asleep. They're not going to be interested. They're going to be disinterested with what I've got to say through your mouth, Isaiah. You want it? Send me, Lord. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. The reason I'll boldly do it is because God has graced me to believe. A sinner saved by grace. I'll do it. I'll preach the true gospel. We might not have a full church. Might not be overflowing with people wanting to get in because we're not going to entertain. We're going to teach the truth. We're going to teach the truth. As we close, please turn to John chapter 12. God's glorious revelation through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Here we are in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry in John chapter 12. Context, 
Jesus. The He is Jesus. But although He had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in Him. Meaning they would not. They refused. Verse 38. In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, Adonai, who has believed our report? And to whom have the arm of, the, of Yahweh has been revealed? Therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. Because, again, Isaiah said, okay, check it out, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. Verse 41, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Verse 37, He, Jesus, his ministry, they wouldn't believe. Verse 41, These things Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. These things Isaiah said when he saw his, Jesus' glory and spoke about him, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ who Isaiah saw in his glory. Isaiah saw Jesus in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And he's telling him, look, I'm going to send you out with my divine truth. And it's going to be fulfilled hundreds of years from now. You're going to preach and you're going to preach and you're going to preach. And then my servant... Jesus Himself, the Son of God, the manifestation of all that God is in human form, comes to earth preaching the truth. The more they hear, the harder they became. The more blind they became. If you sit here today, please, if you sit here today, if you're not in Christ, and you just come to church, and you hear this same thing over and over and over again, and you're not on your face in repentance before God, call out to Him for mercy because you're becoming hardened. Callous. You are callous. The more you hear, the more deaf you become. The more you see the truth revealed, the more blind you will become. If He's pounding your heart, today's the day of repentance. It's only by His grace that you can turn. You will not be, you're in a prison. Your will is like that prisoner. The only freedom He has is to move about within His cell. This is divine retribution. They would not believe, therefore they could not believe. Their hearts were hardened. Look at Isaiah. Look at his readiness. Look at his willingness to serve God. It's so admirable. Even though he was told that his labor would appear, okay, appear fruitless. It's obviously not fruitless because we're studying it a few thousand years later. Amen? So what's the application for us who are in Christ? If you're not in Christ, the application is take heed. Because the more you resist, the harder you're going to become. The more you sit within familiar circles of those who know Christ and you resist, the more blind you're going to become. The more you will be unable. They would not, therefore they could not. But as believers, those of us who've been graced, we understand these attributes of grace. We rejoice in these attributes of grace. We rejoice that God pulled us out of the fire. He delivered us sovereignly. He did it. Here's the application. Even when outward success is not apparent, our task, brothers and sisters, is to remain faithful to the call. To remain faithful. To understand God is sovereign. We live the truth. 
We live out the gospel truth. We preach the truth. We, we, we urge people to respond to the truth. We keep praying for people to be revealed the glorious truth of God. Just as Isaiah was graced, we've been graced with the full revelation, special revelation of who God is and what He has done on our behalf. Your sin has been purged. It's been taken away by the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's persevere. Let's remain faithful in Christ to live, to preach, to teach, disciple the true gospel, prefacing discipleship with all power and authority has been given to Christ over heaven and earth over heaven and earth. And may we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of Creator God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Not a buddy. He's God, who's holy, holy, holy. And see, when a believer's theology is God-centered, self-centered theology, you know what will happen to it? It'll sizzle and die. The more we exalt God, the greater theological perspective you have of God, man-centeredness and the theology of man being exalted will die. It will diminish. So let us serve in the light of the revealed work of our Savior Jesus Christ. In response to His shed blood. Amen? in response to the cross. Let's not be flippant with the holiness of God. Let's exalt God as He's revealed Himself through Scripture. And live according to the grace that's been dispensed to you. That your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then you can be a biblical disciple of Jesus Christ because of His grace who has a proper theology. Not a man-centered traditional theology. A God-centered theology as revealed through the living, active Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. God is sovereign, not man. If you're saved and you're going, well, I don't think that's fair. You know what you ought to do? Get on your knees and just thank Him that though you don't deserve it, He graced you with the ability to believe. Because you will never be able to figure out the sovereignty of God here on this earth. Because if you were able to or I were able to, guess who'd be God? We would, or at least we'd be equal with Him. We're finite. He's infinite. He's sovereign. You've repented because He's graced you. The ability to repent because He's graced you with the ability to believe by seeing Him as He is revealed through the Scripture. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray on behalf of all of us that are in Christ for forgiveness. Forgiveness when we presume upon Your grace. Lord, may we not presume upon Your grace. Help us to understand the graciousness of Your grace. May we realize and understand that our faith is even a gift of grace. Our ability to believe has been grace to us, Lord God. And Lord, as Your Word says clearly, so it is not of Him that chooses, not of Him who runs, not of Him who wills, but it is of You who shows mercy. It's because of Your grace Isaiah was able to see. It's because of Your grace we've been enabled to see. And I pray for those who sit here today who have yet 
been enabled to see, Lord, I pray that you would provide an abundant amount of grace that would lift the veil of unbelief, shatter the callous hardness of their hearts, open their ears that they would hear, bring conviction upon their soul, and may they see that conviction is a grace gift that leads to repentance, that leads to a, here I am, Lord, send me, that you would increase your kingdom through the redeeming work, the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the revelation of the true gospel, for your glory and your honor forever and ever and ever. Amen.